This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. The hot question has to do with what is unfolding in the B.C. Court of Appeal today. So here it is. As the five-day hearing on the Trans Mountain Pipeline project opens in the B.C. Court of Appeal, we want to know what you think. Should it be up to the province or the federal government to regulate oil and bitumen transport in British Columbia? Simple Simple answers. You can either vote for British Columbia or the federal government. And you can vote on Twitter at CKNW. I just retweeted this as well at Joel Reports if you would like to vote there. You're also welcome to call the CKNW Buzz line. That number is 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899 and leave your vote there. You can leave your comment there as well. Or if you want to email me, Jay Bennett, that's J-B-E-N-N-E-T-T at cknw.com. And we are going to talk more uh, with Keith Baldry coming up about this and exactly what the key question is that is being debated in the BC Court of Appeal. And this kind of ties in uh, with the cabinet shuffle this morning. Not a huge shuffle, but as you likely heard, Joyce Murray uh, from Vancouver, now the uh, Treasury Board, now in charge of that. A bit of a difference in the talking points when it comes to the Trans Mountain Pipeline project. But give us uh, your take on the hot question of the day, and then we can share some of those results a bit later on. We'll also have time to open up the phone lines. So if you are just uh, itching to get your opinion across on the phones, fear not. We will open them up in uh, just a little while. But right now, you can head on over to Twitter and vote. As the five-day hearing on the Trans Mountain Pipeline project opens in the BC Court of Appeal, we want to know what you think. Should it be up to the province or the federal government to regulate oil and bitumen transport in British Columbia? Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the BC Court of Appeal is considering the question of provincial power over the future of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project. It is day one of a five-day hearing at the BC Court of Appeal. So we are going to bring in Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. I've just been watching the proceedings. Uh, it's been live streamed out of the Court of Appeal, so people can go on, I think it's their website, and actually watch what's unfolding in that courtroom. Excellent. So what's been happening so far? Well, so Joe, Joe Arbe, the highly regarded uh, lawyer who's acting for the province, is making the opening submission, and he says the province is asking three questions. Does it have, first of all, does it have the right to regulate and control what flows through the province in terms of uh, of specific goods, such as, as bitumen. Uh, and if it does have that right, does the legislation it's proposing, it, it, can that be enacted? And third question is, even if you say yes to the first two, can the feds come in with their own overriding uh, power and legislation to override the uh, the province's move? So the three questions are put, and he's basically, the opening argument strikes me as sort of an acknowledgement that the Constitution as originally set out with determining provincial powers and federal powers, uh, should be subject to sort of reinterpretation as time goes on to reflect current realities and, and new realities that weren't really there at the time of Confederation. He, he refers to the Constitution as a, quote, living tree that must be uh, pruned and altered from time to time, and that's why he's basically arguing maybe back in the 1860s the province didn't have the power to do to control something like this, but this is, you know, modern day, and therefore uh, the Constitution should be sort of reinterpreted to give the provinces the power to uh, to control what flows through their province in terms of environmental protection. Environmental protection that may not have been thought of to the same degree when the Constitution was first uh, drawn up. So what about the argument then that is being made on, on behalf of or on the positive side of this, uh, positive for people that, that want the pipeline put through, uh, the argument being that it's met the conditions, that we have this national board, it's met the conditions of the board, though, and those, uh, in fact, do address the concerns? Yeah, and we're going to get to those arguments at some point in, the, in these five days. It's interesting, Mr. Arve did acknowledge in his opening submission the province does not have the power to stop the pipeline. 
and it is not seeking to stop the pipeline. So their the question for the province's point of view is turning on what can flow through that pipeline. If it was just a pipeline carrying water, there wouldn't be any argument. But it's arguing that, uh, okay, even if the pipeline meets all the conditions, what flows through that pipeline, because it could have an adverse effect on the environment should it get out of the pipeline into water or streams or rivers uh, and such, uh, that therefore the, that's where the province should be able to step in and control and have some regulatory powers over what can actually flows through the pipeline. So it's a different argument than trying to stop the infrastructure of actually building the pipeline. It's more centered on what can go through that pipeline. And that's a, it's a unique argument. And we'll see what the Court of Appeal does with it. Uh, well, and couldn't the argument be made then, say that that was a successful argument in the court and the court said, yes, things have changed. We agree with Mr. Arve. It's different now than it was in the 1800s. And provinces can now have a say over what's transported. Would that not also put the existing pipeline into question then? Yes, very much so, uh, and that's a very that's a very good point. It's and in fact, it could put into question a number of things that flow through the province, uh, whether it's uh, bitumen or or any other. I mean, in downtown Vancouver, every day, every day there are dangerous substances that are transported throughout Metro Vancouver on those rail lines or along the waterfront. We a number of years ago, you recall, we had a toxic spill that co- uh, caused the evacuation of a part of downtown Vancouver. So this could fundamentally alter the the uh, the laws that that determine the, the shipment of, uh, of substances through, uh, through provincial territory. And also, this also would fundamentally strengthen provincial rights over federal rights. And even if you're on the side of, uh, of being anti-pipeline, this would give more power to other provinces that may be diametrically opposed to your interests, such as Saskatchewan and potentially with Scott Moe, who's vehemently anti-carbon tax and anti-environmental uh, regulation, and someone like Jason Kennedy, should he get elected in Alberta. If you want to make the argument that provinces' provincial rights should be strengthened at the, um, uh, at the, at the exclusion of federal powers, that would strengthen a lot of provinces that may not be on side with environmental regulations as much as uh, the federal government is. So it's a it's a two-sided argument here on a number of levels. It's not just a, a, a very clean yes or no here. It has implications for provincial uh, powers uh, in other areas as well. And we're talking about a five-day hearing uh, that's now taking place at the BC Court of Appeal. I think it's a pretty safe bet, isn't it, that no matter what is decided, it's probably going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. Oh, almost assuredly. Another thing to keep in mind, the B.C. Court of Appeal does not have a great record in front of the Supreme Court of Canada. The B.C. Court of Appeal, recall, uh, uh, ruled against the B.C. Teachers Federation on that landmark uh, case about stripping contract language. And the Supreme Court of Canada took 20 minutes to dismiss the Court of Appeal's ruling. So, and that they've, I think, if I recall, the B.C. Court of Appeal has arguably the worst track record in front of the Supreme Court of Canada of all provincial courts of appeal. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be headed this to the Supreme Court of Canada. This is round one of a, of a basically two rounds. So even no matter what the Court of Appeal decides here, we're going to the higher court. And it's interesting, too, as far as this is a national issue, obviously we're talking about a National Energy Board ruling, a, 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 a challenge of that, and the question that BC is putting forward to get clarification on. But it's also a very political issue in that we've seen the pipeline. Quebec says they don't want it. Fine. This federal government says you don't need it because you're Quebec, whether they say that or not. Um, we must save SNC-Lavalin because it's jobs. Well, nobody nobody in that government is talking about the pipeline using the jobs argument. It's also a very political uh, hot potato. Oh, definitely. And in fact, it's, it's particularly a hot potato for the VCNDP government. They, it vowed, the party vowed to use, quote, every tool in our toolbox to block this pipeline. Well, it turns out the only tool they've got, and they, they realized when they came into office, they had no power to block the pipeline. And they've hit upon this somewhat unique argument that we can, can, we can block what flows through that pipeline. And that's the only tool they have left. The NEB has to be seen to appease its own supporters of doing what it can to, to block this project. But I, it's interesting that it's, it's sort of been uh, reduced to a somewhat obscure constitutional argument that nobody even dreamt of back in the election campaign, uh, rather than the proverbial lying down in front of bulldozers and, and blocking and, and getting injunctions against the project. So it's, uh, they've, they've condensed their opposition to a rather narrow argument, but nevertheless, they have to be seen as opposing the pipeline for political purposes. But, but again, so and if that's their argument, and that's where they're, they're standing, then why aren't they also uh, going to court and, and trying to block railway uh, railways and rail cars from bringing this stuff to the coast? Well, they're, they... W- 
my read of Arve's argument that this will extend to railways as well, that it's going to be an argument that, uh, what, in this case it's a pipeline, but the overarching uh, argument here is that this is an argument that w- the province can control whatever flows through the province by whatever means, whether it's rail cars, pipelines, or trucks, or, or anything else for that matter. So this could extend, by my read, to railways as well, and to uh, barges and ferries and, and truck, trucks. So it's, it's an overall argument about controlling the flow of substances through the province that could detrimentally uh, or adversely affect the environment should they get out of the transport. All right. Well, Keith, we're going to open up the phone lines coming up, but I appreciate uh, you can get back to the live stream uh, of that from the BC Court of Appeal. And thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Keith Baldry is the Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Well, as you likely heard, Simi was filling in earlier today on the John McComb Show. If you are interested, check out the John McComb Show podcast. You will find that wherever you get your favorite podcasts as well as at cknw.com. Well, let's shift gears and talk about some new technology now. And it's all about giving advance warnings when it comes to earthquakes. And uh, as we know here in BC, we are often reminded that the big one will be hitting at some point. Well, the BC Transportation Ministry is now looking to purchase 25 new hybrid earthquake sensors that would not only expand the existing strong motion sensor network, but it would also provide information needed for the early warning systems. They would be put on places such as bridges, and they would provide notice that an earthquake is imminent imminent, that is. So how does it work? And is it something that could be something that homeowners could adopt? Or could we see them on major pieces of infrastructure as well? We'll bring in now Bayrad Bayrani. He is an associate professor with the School of Mechatronic Systems and Engineering at SFU. He's been developing this kind of sensor technology at the university. Uh, Professor Bayrani, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, I think a lot of people, uh, we are often fearful or we are told to make sure we are prepared for when a large earthquake hits this region. Uh, We're now looking or we're seeing that the uh, provincial government is looking at buying earthquake sensors. Uh, This is the kind of research that you're involved with as well. How are we as far as developing technology that is actually able to sense uh, an earthquake? Um, so we've been able to sense earthquakes for many, many uh, decades, actually. The issue is that the sensors that are used to detect earthquakes are very expensive. Uh, the way this detection happens is that uh, usually at the onset of an earthquake, two waves are produced. One is the surface wave that is very destructive and, and causes all the destruction in the, to the buildings and infrastructure around us. And there is another wave that is called, that is a P wave uh, or a pressure wave, which is essentially the sound of the earthquake. And this wave travels a bit faster than the destructive wave. And this is the wave that actually the animals can hear and react to, and we humans cannot. Um, so the issue is that making these are, well, obviously very, very weak signals if the earthquake is relatively far from us. And the sensors to pick them up are delicate instruments and uh, Many places, many uh, infrastructure, many organizations cannot afford the highest sensitivity devices. And with the advances in the technology, we are moving towards uh, um, basically developing these new types of sensors that are lower cost, lower uh, power uh, power consumption is lower, and they take smaller areas. And the idea is that we can spread these sensors over wider areas and uh, basically have a network of these sensors that hopefully can talk to each other, but can individually protect an infrastructure or uh, provide local warning to people or occupants of a, a building. How much time would they give us? Uh, interesting, you mentioned it's kind of the, the same uh, waves that animals pick up on, and animals always know before the humans know uh, when an earthquake is coming. How much advance notice would they, would they give us? Uh, well, because the detection uh, mechanism is based on the difference in the speed of these two uh, waves, it actually depends on how far you are from the epicenter of the earthquake. The closer you are, the smaller is that time difference. But typically, it's about a few seconds per 10 kilometers of distance. So if an earthquake happens about 200 kilometers from, let's say, Vancouver, you get somewhere between 20 to 40 seconds of reaction time to that earthquake. Which can be crucial in, uh, in that moment. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, well, okay, so even if you're relatively close, and even, even if you have, let's say, only five seconds of warning time or something like that, that's still plenty of time for systems to react to, to that signal, right? So, for example, you can shut down um, machinery very easily. You can, uh, if needed, you can disconnect the gas and uh, electricity supplies to buildings. Those systems react much faster than humans. Uh, but even for case of humans, if there's a uh, surgery going on in operating room, you can basically, you know, five seconds of warning is enough for the surgeon to move a bit uh, from the patient. And, and uh, it, it, it can save quite a bit of uh, um, human life, but also it can be very crucial in terms of post-earthquake uh, damage uh, control. And these sensors, are they still in the development phase or are, you at a, are they at a stage where they're actually being tested? Um, okay, so the the actual sensors themselves or, or the devices that can pick up these kinds of vibrations, they've been around for many decades now. The challenge with them was the cost. You know, right. these devices are tens of thousands of dollars a piece, and they're very delicate. They need special installation, and um, for that reason, they're not that widespread. Nowadays, there are alternative devices that are Essentially, in many cases, microsystems, micro devices, the type of devices that we are working on at the SFU. Uh, and these are basically gaining enough performance uh, and improving uh, so much in terms of their frequency response sensitivity and other aspects that they can be used as strong motion sensors nowadays in many applications. And I think we are going to see more and more of the widespread use of these microsystems in this application. And where would you put them or where would be, we, we, you mentioned a few places where it would be crucial to turn things off where, uh, you know, gas systems or machinery or operating rooms, would they be placed, say, uh, closer to hospitals or by bridges or by big infrastructure pieces? Exactly. So it depends on the type of infrastructure you're trying to protect. For example, if it is a bridge, you want it to be somewhere close to the bridge so that you can operate, for example, signals so that the drivers would not go on the bridge. Or if it is uh, supposed to protect a building, what you can do is that you can bury them usually at a different depth, but you can bury them near the building to remove some of the surface noise. And once they detect a uh, signal or a suspicious uh, suspicious signal, they can basically warn the occupants or, or the machinery. But they are attached to the infrastructure that they are intended to protect. But with the advances that are, uh, especially over the past, let's say, decade or so in the Internet of Things and such areas, there is a possibility to connect these sensors to each other. And radio waves travel much faster than, than these seismic waves. So if your earthquake sensor here in Vancouver picks up something, you can, for example, alert people in Chilivac or Abbotsford that an earthquake is coming. You know, it's probably 10, minutes, 10 seconds from you, but we detected it already. And with a network of these sensors, not only you can detect the magnitude, but you can also detect the direction of this earthquake wave. Which direction is it going to traveling? You know, what are the areas that are at danger and, and uh, so on and so forth. Which, and again, I would imagine, too, you'd be able to know which areas are going to are in danger of the most damage. Yes. So for that, you need uh, more than one sensor because one sensor gives you information about one spot only. You need an image. Uh, so these are like pixels in a, in a digital image. The more pixels you have, the finer is the information that you have about the larger area. So you need a network of these sensors. And with the uh, current technology or let's say current uh, existing uh, solutions, that's going to be very, very expensive. But these upcoming sensors, these new devices can hopefully bring down the cost so that you can equip every major building with one of these sensors and every major piece of infrastructure with one of these sensors. And do you think, would that be enough? Is there a certain point where if you were able to put them in every major building and major center, uh, is that enough to cover the area? Or do you see a time where the cost comes comes down enough? This is something that's a commonplace in a home as well. Um, I, okay, so in my research group, we certainly think that this is going to be cheap enough, affordable enough that you can put it in a home in a, in a few years, hopefully. But right now, you know, you basically in many cases do not need one per home. You need one per block okay. because that entire block is going to be subjected to the same earthquake. There are cases that you can argue that, yeah, it is going to have... Uh, you have benefits if there is one per home, but this could be different sensors, different capabilities. But in general, uh, yeah, you need um, 
you know, a, a relatively good sized region can be monitored with the sensor. So if, let's say if you have one sensor per block, you're, you're covered pretty well. All right. Well, a very interesting research, and given that people would like to uh, have as much advance notice as possible. Uh, Beirad Bahraini, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the program. My pleasure. Professor Bahraini is uh, an associate professor with the School of Mechatronic Systems and Engineering at Simon Fraser University. Well, it is one of those topics uh, that many people have opinions on. It can make people angry. It can cause fights in some areas. Talking about not just driving, but parking. And this is a study that takes a look at the supply of parking spots, whether it's condo buildings, rental apartment buildings, street parking, what have you. Uh, It's a study that's done by Metro Vancouver and Trans link and taking a look at regional planning and how to plan better for the future. And some of the findings when it comes to parking spaces might surprise you, particularly for strata apartment buildings. The parking supply exceeds the utilization by 42%. For market rental apartment buildings, the supply exceeds the utilization by 35%. And you get the pattern that's happening here. Well, let's bring in James Stiver, manager of growth Management and Transportation at the Planning and Environment Department for Metro Vancouver. James, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Any surprises for you that the amount of parking in condo buildings and rental buildings uh, far exceeds uh, the usage? Um, no, and, and anecdotally, we've been hearing from people on the ground that this is a, a trend that uh, that has been happening more and more as, as uh, the city densifies and more people take transit. And in fact, uh, we had a study completed in 2012 that had very similar results. This latest version of the study was meant to refresh um, that that uh, that study from a few years back and also look at a, a bit of a broader. Uh, sweep in terms of location of apartment buildings across the region to make sure that we had a reflection of, of um, um, a broader geography of the region. And, and the trends have really held true uh, with this latest version of the study as well. And when you say it's partially because people are using more transit, is that so? Can we tell if is the reason that, say, somebody's condo and their parking spot in their buildings not being used, is it because they're choosing to use transit and not have a vehicle? Or could it be something else like they're parking on the street? It, it, that, that's an excellent question. It is a complex issue. It's certainly not uh, not all that simple. We had three components of this study. One was um, um, uh, a count on the ground of the utilization of parking in these uh, strata and rental buildings across the region. Uh, a second component was related to... Um, um, uh, a user survey to look at uh, the habits and choices of, of apartment dwellers in, in these locations. And then a third component was an on-street um, parking count for streets within 200 meters of these selected buildings. So the, uh, the data from all three of these streams fed into the, uh, the results of the study. And, uh, and, and I'm sure there are uh, people in these buildings that have chosen to park on the street because of um, uh, the costs associated with a, a space related to their unit or visitors or, um, or, or other purposes as well. So we wanted to cast the net as broad as, as we could to understand the trends. Uh, because this came up a while ago, I remember uh, covering it in, in the West End, because the West End of Vancouver is one of the densest areas for population. Parking is always at a premium on the street. Uh, but it, that, And that, I think, was part of the reason for upping the price of street parking permits, was to try and get people to use the parking spots in their buildings, because it was uh, found that in, in that scenario as well, there were so many spots that weren't being used. Right, yes, and, and, and we've noticed that too. And again, we've heard that anecdotally as well. Uh, what we found uh, through conversations with uh, with uh, different uh, planning practitioners across the region, and also what we found through this this um, uh, the survey component, the household survey component, is a lot of those spaces are utilized by visitors and not residents. So the the components of the survey also had a time a timestamp associated with it, and late night um, late night analysis of parking utilization really shows a different picture. Once uh, visitors or, or people that have uh, parked on a street to access a nearby commercial area or a restaurant or, or shopping, uh, once they've all kind of vacated and gone home, it, it certainly paints a picture of over oversupply based on demand.
Hmm. And the cost of it as well is something I think we don't talk about all that often is that the cost of building the parking spot, if we're looking at a high rise, I think the Urban Development Institute has taken a look at this, uh, saying it can be 20000 it can be up to $45,000 just added to the cost of construction that's not even factoring in maintenance and and what else goes into that. Uh, So there is that cost factor of something, uh, of putting that money into something that, that perhaps is not going to be used. Absolutely, and and we're hearing the same things. And and if uh, if, if uh, builders are being required to put in these parking spaces that are not being used, that is a cost that ends up being transferred on to the ultimate uh, purchaser of the unit or the renter of the unit. And uh, we're all well aware of the, the challenges around housing affordability in this region. And if this could be used as one of the tools to help reduce the cost of housing or the, or the lower rents. Uh, certainly something that uh, that warrants a closer look. Uh, so what do you do with the study now as far as looking at the numbers? And uh, is it is the goal to try and utilize the spaces that aren't being utilized right now? Uh, another excellent question. We we shared the uh, the results of the study with the regional planning committee that's comprised of uh, um, uh, mayors and and councillors from around the region. Uh, we will be producing a summary document and distributing it far and wide. Our municipal partners, um, the region's made up of, of uh, 21 different municipal agencies, uh, Tawasin First Nation, and we, uh, we've been having regular conversations with the members from those jurisdictions about the data. They're very interested in this data. We will be distributing it far and wide uh, with a key messages document to, to start that conversation. Um, changing the use of the parking spaces that are deemed to be underutilized is, I think, a, a, a local discussion with uh, local councils and neighborhoods, but certainly a much, uh, a much um, a deeper discussion has to take place around that. Um, this, would, this data is certainly useful for shaping parking requirements and regulations going forward with new buildings. I think it's more challenging to go back and retrofit existing, especially if it's in the form of uh, underground parkade parking. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. Is it something then, I don't know if you, if you have the answer to this question, but right now, I would imagine a developer, if you're going to build a building, depending on the size, how many units are in it, you, you would have to su- um, provide in that building a certain number of parking spots. Yeah, absolutely. And each city has their own requirements and they're all different. Um, but um, as as the region uh, sees more and more apartments being built because of the maturity of the region and, and where we're, we're coming as, a, as an urban area and our land constraints and, and all the other things uh, that uh, we talk about quite often, there's going to be more and more demand for apartment style um, uh, forms of, of housing and more pressure on um, uh, providing uh, parking uh, underground, which again, as you noted, was very costly. So that uh, this is going to become more and more of an issue going forward. Uh, because one of the arguments always is too, uh, I mean, we've seen it on the Broadway corridor, we've seen it in places uh, when larger buildings are proposed, then people, businesses in the area that depend on that street parking for their clients, for the customers, uh, are concerned that residents are going to start parking there. It does seem uh, like you have to find that balance. Absolutely. And again, an immensely complex issue with lots of moving parts. Uh, I think um, there's a lot of assumptions that go into parking. And, and you mentioned off the top of what a, uh, what a sensitive issue it is, and it often gets people uh, quite excited about it when they're talking about it. Uh, and it's going to continue to do so. But uh, a lot of push and pull um, in the areas of residential and commercial interests uh, I think a lot of times people have expectations about having that perfect parking spot right out front of their unit, um, and uh, it's certainly a broader discussion around uh, looking at parking as a system, and, and it's a, a much broader um, discussion than immediately right in front of the, the resident or the, the business that you want to access. And you touched on this, but there is a big difference, isn't there, uh, between buildings that are very close to transit, be it close to a SkyTrain station, uh, and those that aren't, that, that somebody might need a vehicle? Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and we tend to look in concentric circles around um, uh, frequent transit hubs like SkyTrain stations or, uh, uh, or frequent uh, route, bus routes like B-Lines. Uh, we have a five-minute and ten-minute walk circle that we tend to look at, and uh, the, the, the basis of this study was to look at apartments in close proximity to what we're calling the frequent transit network, which is um, uh, SkyTrain and, and regular bus service routes, 
and they uh, the evidence is that those areas tend to have uh, lower car usage, as you would expect, because the, the transit options are, are so much better. This is also feedstock for a, a, a continuing conversation with our municipal partners and our friends at TransLink about providing service to, to areas and, and the benefits that uh, increased transit uh, provision provides to riders and especially renters. The, the study also shows that renters tend to use transit more often than owners. So this, this is all um, great uh, conversation uh, feedstock for future regulation and uh, when decisions are made about future transit investments in the region. All right. Uh, interesting results for sure. Uh, James Stiver, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, James Diver is the Manager of Growth Management and Transportation at the Planning and Environment Department for Metro Vancouver. So let's bring in Mercedes Stevenson right now, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News, also the host of the West Block. Mercedes, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so break down what happened today. We know that Michael Warnick uh, is leaving his job. He uh, told the Prime Minister in this open letter uh, that there is no path for a relationship of mutual trust with the opposition. Uh, what else do we know? So what we know at this point is that certainly he he is indicating his departure is related to the SNC-Lavalin scandal. He came to light, first of all, when he testified in front of that Justice Committee, and he said some things that dropped people's jaws. Uh, they did not expect this from someone who is a nonpartisan, in fact, the most senior um, civil servant in the Canadian government. He said that he expected someone would be assassinated during the election campaign. He openly praised uh, one of the Liberal government's ministers, Minister Bennett, um, who was known to come into conflict pretty frequently with Jody Wilson-Raybould. He got into almost uh, arguments with opposition MPs, and they came out and said, look, this guy's partisan. We can't work with him. He sits on um, this election committee to determine whether or not there's interference. We don't trust him. And we actually had the minister in charge of democratic institutions on the West Block, um, not this week, but the week before. And we asked her, how can you leave him on the committee if the opposition doesn't trust him? She insisted it was no problem. Well, today he's resigning, saying that is exactly the reason why, that because he can't have a relationship of mutual trust and respect with the opposition leaders, there's no way he can sit on an election interference committee. So now this government has lost their top civil servant, their top political advisor, and two senior ministers. So uh, another explosive day here in Ottawa. And do you get any uh, idea on why today in that up until today, as you mentioned, we've been told it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Uh, It's fine. Now he's resigned. We don't know the reason why for sure at this exact timing. And it was very interesting because he was actually at the cabinet shuffle this morning. There was a cabinet shuffle. The clerk of the Privy Council always goes to that. Um, And I watched him get out of his car there and walk in on TV live. So he, something happened between that time this morning and 1.45 this afternoon. And I actually asked Minister Freeland about this. She was at a press conference when it came out. She said she knows what happened, but that she can't break cabinet confidence, so she won't say. Um, now, these kinds of decisions usually are not made overnight. He has been under increasing pressure and targeted by the opposition. Very tough to do his job if he's not perceived as being neutral. And while the government says they did not ask for his resignation, um, there's no question that they are trying to put out any oxygen feeding the fire around this scandal, whether it is with the budget tomorrow or reannouncing the missions to Iraq and Ukraine uh, continuing today, Wernick resigning, uh, they're into full-on damage control mode. Now, there's no indication, as I said, that they asked him to do this. They say they didn't. But it appears he simply realized that he could not continue on in this manner. He'd become a target. And he was perceived as being partisan, which the bureaucrats can't be. Exactly. And interesting when you say that they say they didn't ask him to. Uh, when uh, We know now how important words are when uh, in when this was all starting to unfold. Uh, the Prime Minister saying that Jody Wilson-Raybould wasn't directed to do anything, uh, which wasn't the question. So it could be a case once again of semantics. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think there was a lot of people around him who I've talked to who are warning him, you can't stay in this job. Um, how much was a push, how much was a jump, unclear. But I do know that he was very aware of the fact that this was extremely problematic. Um, And it's one thing to continue on in the job now, but as you get closer to that election, if you're perceived as being partisan in any way, uh, your ability to do your job is seriously jeopardized and people might start questioning the election results. So you're talking about some pretty serious consequences uh, if he had stayed on. Most political watchers in Ottawa thought that he was either going to have to resign or be fired at some point. All right, Mercedes, I know it's a busy day for you. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. Mercedes Stevenson, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News, also the host of the West Block. Thanks for being with us today. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, a group of women's rights activists is now facing charges in a court in Saudi Arabia. And a member of that group is a former student of UBC. Uh, Lujain Al-Hathloul is one of those detained last spring. The charges include promoting women's rights. So let's bring in Jacqueline Hansen, a women's rights campaigner for Amnesty International. Jacqueline, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, What has happened in this case? Maybe give us a bit of background uh, before we get to what's happening today. How did we get to this point? Well, back in May, everyone was getting ready for Saudi Arabia to lift its ban on women driving the the subsequent month. But what the Saudi authorities actually did was they arrested Lujain and a number of the other just incredible women human rights activists in Saudi Arabia. We thought maybe they would be released after the driving ban was lifted. That didn't happen. And unfortunately, even more women's rights activists were then detained. Many of these women have now been in jail for up to 10 months. There are repeated and very credible allegations of torture. And all of a sudden, last week, 11 of the women were brought to a trial hearing in a criminal court in Riyadh and were charged with things that were absolutely absurd. They are not criminal. They are things, the sign of a good activist. They were charged with promoting women's rights. They were charged with talking to foreign media, talking with other activists, including Amnesty International. And we're waiting for their next trial hearing next week to see what happens next. Unfortunately, this is all happening under um, uh, with a lot of um, uncertainty. This isn't a transparent court process. Uh, diplomats, media weren't allowed into the courtroom last week. So we're incredibly concerned and we're just trying to get the women out of jail because they shouldn't be there. Uh, so at this point, uh, is it more uh, the, these accusations or these things that, that you say they've been, that they're accused of, but how, is it that no formal charges have actually been laid or that we know of right now? It's very complicated because it was such a closed court hearing last week. It's been very difficult to get precise information, but we do know that there were charges laid last week at the court hearing, um, and all of them are completely bogus charges. They're all related to the peaceful women's rights work that these women have been engaged in, and they've really done nothing wrong. And so we now have to wait and see what happens at the hearing next week. But the whole point is these women shouldn't be in jail at all. This is part of a broader crackdown on freedom of expression in Saudi Arabia. It's a specific um, crackdown on women's rights activists, and and we're calling for these women to be immediately and unconditionally released. Uh, Do we have any idea at this point the conditions under which they're being held? Not good. None of the women had access to legal representation for the trial last week. Um, There have been repeated allegations, as I mentioned, of of torture and other forms of ill treatment. So it's really important that these women are released right away because they've they've undergone things no one should have to undergo over the last 10 months. Uh, there's been a call as well uh, at the United Nations, the Human Rights Council. Uh, there's been uh, several countries have called on the kingdom, on Saudi Arabia, to release the human rights activists that are being held. Has there been any response to that? There hasn't, except for that the hearing was, was last minute called last week in what seemed to be retribution for, for the Human Rights Council statement. So right now it's just, it's, we're encouraging all governments to keep up the pressure on Saudi authorities to keep this in the public eye, to be raising the case of the women human rights defenders and all of their public and their private interactions with Saudi authorities up to the highest levels of the regime um, because we, we can't turn our attention away from this case. These women shouldn't be in jail and we, we are committed to doing everything we can do and we're calling on governments to be committed to doing everything they can do to keep the pressure on until the women are released. And with the the charges being laid, but without any information about that, without people being there to really see what happened during that hearing, uh, or that when they were when they were brought in, is there any way of knowing what kind of punishment that they face, or what type, what 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 Saudi Arabia has in store for them? 
We're not sure. We had thought that the women would be charged um, with terrorism-related offenses, which which would have um, happened in a in a specialized court and could have carried a prison sentence of several decades. Uh, but last minute, about eight hours before the the court hearing last week, the the hearing was moved from a specialized court to a criminal court, and the charges were different than what we'd expected. And so we're not actually sure exactly what the punishments might be that could be associated with those charges. It's it's not a transparent process, and so it's really challenging for us to predict. And we mentioned uh, Lujane Alhath-Lul, uh, one, one of those who has been arrested that's being held. Uh, she, she was a former, is a former uh, UBC student. Is that, does that help in all in what Canada can do uh, as far as Canada's role in, in even fighting for her release or getting more information on the case? Yeah, well, Lou Jane is a UBC graduate. Um, one of her siblings is is a Canadian permanent resident, resident, and I think that strong tie to to Canada has been enormously helpful. And Canada was one of the the countries that signed on to the Human Rights Council statement last week. As you know, Canada last summer uh, tweeted out calling for the release of the women human rights defenders. So, so this Canada connection is is incredibly important, and and. We're we're encouraging Canada, as we are where all governments, to continue doing absolutely everything they can, pull out all the stops, make noise, let's do what we need to be doing to, to get these women brought, brought home to their families and friends and loved ones. Are you concerned at all that tweet, though, uh, did more damage than good, in that that tweet wasn't overly well received by Saudi Arabia? Sometimes that means you're making a difference. Sometimes making noise can have an impact. Uh, we work with uh, the families, the supporters of uh, people who are detained, and the strategy now is to make this loud, to make this public, to shine a light on the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia, to, to not handle this quietly, and just to keep that public pressure on Saudi authorities, because they are very sensitive to that public pressure, and keep that pressure up to release the women now. Uh, there was a, a quote, a CNN coverage of the story had a quote from a Saudi official, and the question was about torture. And uh, the response was saying that the kingdom of Saudi Arabia's judiciary system doesn't condone uh, the use of torture, uh, saying that it doesn't, is not used for anybody who's being held uh, in any way, uh, any type of torture. Uh, is there any reason to believe that? No, there's not. And we have been calling for independent investigators to be allowed access to the prisons in Saudi Arabia to conduct their own investigation. We haven't received any response back from Saudi authorities to that request. So if Saudi authorities want to open up their prisons to independent, impartial investigations, that would be a step in the right direction. But so far right now, all we're hearing are are very credible, repeated allegations of torture with only an internal allegation into those allegations, which, which said, of course, that no torture had occurred. So... Uh, let, let's see Saudi uh, take some action and actually allow an in- independent investigation in. Has uh, Lujain been allowed any access to, to family, any contact at all? There has been some sporadic contact, but she has never had access to legal representation, including at the hearing last week. Right, and, and I would imagine that's the same, the same scenario for the other women held as well. Absolutely. So no legal representation, sporadic uh, sporadic family contact. Uh, so what do you do from here as far as uh, calling on, on to keep this uh, in the forefront, to keep this case, uh, people talking about it, people, uh, countries calling on Saudi Arabia to release uh, the women? What else can you as an organization now do? Well, we're trying to encourage governments with representation in Riyadh to continue pressing for both media and for diplomats to be allowed access to the courtroom for next week's hearing. They were barred when they tried to enter the hearing last week. So, so that would be huge if we're actually able to have people monitoring uh, the hearing. That would be an, an element of transparency. So we're encouraging governments to do that. We're trying to keep this issue in the media. We're trying to um, just keep it out there because we know that, that Saudi Arabia, they, they really do care what the world thinks about them. Um, MBS is 
trying to peg himself as the great reformer, and all of these human rights abuses really cast that into doubt. And so the more we can be raising awareness of the abuses that are happening and try to get it'll really help us, we believe, to, to get some real action on these, on these uh, horrific human rights violations. Do you think it is enough that Canada should relook at the arms deal it does, it has with Saudi Arabia? Yeah, we have long been calling for that. Um, we really feel as Amnesty International that, uh, you know, human rights don't and, and never can be allowed to carry a price tag. And we are incredibly concerned that Canada is selling weapons to Saudi Arabia that are fueling the conflict in in Yemen. And so so we, we've been very grateful on the one hand for what Canada has done in support of the jailed women human rights defenders in Saudi Arabia, but that's very inconsistent with the approach to, to the arms deal. All right, uh, we'll leave it there, but we will continue following along with what happens here. Uh, Jacqueline, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Jacqueline Hansen is a women's rights campaigner for Amnesty International. Thanks for being with us today. Well, the Tesla unveiled last week, the compact SUV, the Model Y, is creating a bit of buzz, you could say. It is trying to reach a bigger audience, perhaps, than previous Teslas. But to talk more about this and about why people are taking notice of it is Dustin Woods, associate editor of autotrader.ca. Dustin is on the line with us. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So what is it about the Model Y that is grabbing people's attention? Oh, I think, well, I mean, Tesla CEO Elon Musk is an interesting guy. So anytime he announces anything, there's bound to be some, some interest involved. So after a brief delay, he uh, addressed media last Thursday and welcomed out the, the host of uh, selection of Tesla vehicles, including the new Generation Y, which is going to be an electric crossover, which is not a common vehicle in today's marketplace. And um, it's also, I mean, SUVs uh, interest has, has skyrocketed over the last few years. Uh, in 2018, we saw an average of 11% year-over-year increase in new SUV listings on autotrader.ca alone, uh, generating over 160 million views. So really, it seems to be the direction that the industry is going. So for a company like Tesla to offer a vehicle like this uh, is, is very interesting. And also, his price that he quoted was, you know, $1,000. Now, that's a U.S. price, but that's also attracting, uh, attracting people as well. All right, so your phone cut out there. What's the price of it? So in the U.S., it was $39,000. Okay. Now, in Canada, it will be starting around the mid-50s. Uh, for the uh, rear-wheel drive long range, it'll be about 50, 57000 And for his performance model, uh, it'll be uh, about just over $74,000 with a $3,000 premium for the seven-seater model. The five-seater one was announced, and it'll be produced first. And what about the range of the vehicles? And is that still a concern for people that are looking at these? It definitely is. Now, the range that they have provided is as far as 482 kilometers of usable range. Now, that can be impacted as Canadians. We have different climate than they do where many of these people who drive these vehicles live. But it just means that, uh, you know, you need to plan your life accordingly to have an electric vehicle rather than planning your life around filling up with fuel at a gas station. Uh, You need to plan around charging stations, and some people have no problem doing that. We've seen that um, 97% of electric vehicle owners come from Toronto, uh, sorry, Ontario, uh, Quebec, and D.C., and so we see really a, a significant urban market where people don't seem to have an issue with plugging their vehicles in at home and at the office. There's much more infrastructure now than there has been in previous years. All right. And what about the market itself? So this is an SUV. I read somewhere that they're really pushing this as the the perfect vehicle for a family vacation. Uh, Is it the North American family that they're going after or who is the, the demographic that they're really targeting here? I mean, they're probably trying to target as many people as they can. Uh, EVs, 
are a, a small segment. To give you some context of the close to 400,000 new and used vehicles that we have on Autotrader.ca, less than 7,000 of those are electric vehicles or plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. Now, with a price point starting in the mid-50,000 range for an SUV, obviously it's not uh, as inexpensive as, say, the Nissan Leaf, which was the number one selling electric vehicle in Canada last year. But, uh, you know, probably the, the young professional uh, market, I would say, young families, young professionals, anybody above that, they'd be looking at uh, trying to get people into these vehicles. And where do they make them? Uh, they're in the U.S. They have a number of plants down there in uh, Fremont. And, and in California. Right. And is there any cha- plan to move that? Or I thought I had seen somewhere that they might be expanding or they might be making some in China or in other countries as well. Absolutely, yes. There will be a production facility. I believe there's going to be three production facilities in China. And they've also been talking about moving, um, having fewer showrooms and reducing the number of showrooms and putting a higher priority on online sales, which is really a way that's, uh, you know, the direction that part of the industry is going. Some other manufacturers have started uh, dipping their toes in that market as well. Which seems like a big shift when you think about purchasing a vehicle, which is still a very big purchase for most people, and doing that with the click of a mouse rather than actually going and sitting in it and touching it and seeing it up close. Definitely. Our information has shown that people really still do, people do a lot of their research online, but they really, there's something about going and actually speaking with a human person and sitting in the, in the vehicle and, and touching it and driving it, that there's really no replacement for that. Do you think that will change? Uh, it's hard to say. I think that the industry is really going a direction where they're trying to offer boutique stores. So Tesla, as well as companies like Genesis, they have smaller boutique stores uh, rather than large uh, showrooms, uh, as we've seen in the past. So it could continue to go that way, or maybe there will be a resurgence of you know, people wanting to deal with, uh, with humans rather than computers. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, uh, one of the other cars, uh, the Leaf. Is there a, a competitor or is there one particular company that is known or considered the competitor for Tesla? Jaguar released an iPACE earlier this year, and actually, interestingly enough, a company called Fisker, who made the Karma a number of years ago and went bankrupt, recently announced as early as today, actually, that they are have, have come out with a battery-powered SUV concept that they said will go the same distance as the Tesla and will cost the same price as the Tesla. Now, it's also scheduled for a late 2021 market launch, so even if they come out as early as they say they're going to. Tesla's going to beat them to the punch by about a year. So, you know, the, the trend is certainly going towards SUVs and crossovers. But, uh, you know, in two years from now, it could be a, a completely different uh, situation. Oh, in, in, indeed. Uh, we've seen also the, the testing or looking at even b- bigger vehicles, whether it's uh, semi-trucks, uh, delivery trucks. Uh, do, we, do you think that that's also uh, how it's going to go, even if it's light trucks, uh, something bigger than an SUV? Is that what people are looking for? Some people are. I think some people, uh, as I mentioned, you know, in, in more urban centers, some people, it's, it's definitely of interest to them. For other people who, say, live in middle parts of the country, are not interested at all. The infrastructure isn't set up there and their lives aren't suited to it. But for some people, you know, the, the, the electric crossover might be exactly the vehicle they're looking for. Larger transport trucks. Uh, it's really hard to say diesel transport trucks equate to, you know, most of the large transport trucks, and uh, they're going really, really far. So to deal with uh, a certain infrastructure for that uh, distance is, is going to be very challenging. Indeed. All right. Well, Dustin, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Dustin Woods, Associate Editor at Autotrader.ca, talking about the Model Y, the Tesla, and looking at the rising demand for SUVs for crossovers in the electronic vehicle market.